Welcome to Strings Attached, the latest podcast on the PointCast Network. Strings Attached is a new podcast that focuses on demystifying topics that have been labeled taboo and complex. The show connects us to hard truth. Sometimes these truths challenge opinions we have, asking us to question why we believe the things we do. I encourage listeners to remain open-minded and welcome introspection as a path towards liberation and aligned action. Remember, the ability to change is available to us all. On today's show, we'll be wrapping up our series on Palestine. This time, we'll be talking about Tetris, a type of embroidery that's indigenous to Palestine and has become a means of cultural preservation and resistance. I'm your host, Sasha Estrella-Jones, and with me on today's show is Zeynep Tawil. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Zainab is a Palestinian Syrian American who is the co-founder of Designs by Nuna, Petri's based accessory brand. We are really looking forward to today's conversation with you, Zainab. Let's just dive on in. Let's just do it. So I briefly mentioned what Tetris is, but who better to actually explain it than a Palestinian who does Tetris? So what is Tetris for our listeners who've never heard of it before, have no clue what it is? Right. Um, well, Tetris is a, like you said, traditional Palestinian embroidery. It's actually cross-stitch. So cross-stitch has been done like for thousands of years by many different cultures, but this specific cross-stitch is really specific to Palestinians. Um, what makes it so specific is that people tend to historically use symbols and motifs and kind of um, take take uh, inspiration from the natural world. And so Tatris in and of itself is very much tied to Palestinian indigenousness in the land. Um, it's typically an art form that's passed down by mother to daughter and girls like from a super, super, super young age, I'm talking like four or five, like as young as being able to hold a needle would start to learn Oh, wow. The Palestinian embroidery. Yeah. My grandma told me that her her mom was a seamstress and she taught seamstress classes. And when she was like four years old, she would have to like take her with her to these classes and she would give her like a piece of cloth and like a needle and a piece of thread and she would thread it for her and she would just sit and do kind of like kids stuff, you know, like just loop after loop after loop. But that's that's the story for many, many Palestinians. Um predating 1948 and I'm sure that's still the story for many Palestinians but definitely with occupation Tetris is not passed down from mother to daughter as frequently anymore due to just displacement people having to let go of the practice to pick up other more like manual labor skills so I'm getting into a whole bunch of other things but that's kind of a brief no but it's all good I mean one of the questions I was going to ask you later down the line but we might as well go into it now since you brought it up is Tatris being passed down in a really unique way of mother to daughter and the significance prior to Israeli occupation in 1948 how did that change with occupation do you have any personal stories of tetris being impacted in your family by the occupation yeah definitely um i think well to touch on the latter part of your question first 
like I said, my my grandmother comes from a long, really long line of seamstresses, women who like made clothes, made lace, made um, even made cloth. She's from Gaza and Gaza is very well known for different regions that actually would weave fabric. So she comes from a long line of textile workers in general. And like I said, her mother used to teach um, sewing classes. Her grandmother was really, really like good at tapiris and was known in her family for that. And so my grandmother was very similar to her ancestors in that way. But in 1948, she had to leave Palestine with her husband, my Jiddo, who passed on Alayarhamo, and two of her kids. She ended up having 10 kids, but they walked from Palestine to Damascus, Syria over the course of like six to eight months. And wow, I know. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a long journey. It was they made several stops kind of along the way and would stay with people kind of in a refuge situation. But they ended up in Damascus, Syria. And then my data, my grandmother told me that after that, she never made like anything again that wasn't with a utility sort of purpose. So like maybe fixing holes in like the uniforms for her kids, like my mom and her siblings or you know, kind of like hemming things, but like she never really did the threes ever again. And one of the really sad parts of displacement occupation, especially 1948 specifically, is that so many people left so much behind because they thought that it was only going to be like a two to three day situation. Like most people, and that's why you have the symbol of Palestinians holding the keys to their homes, because people locked their homes and left because they thought, oh, I'm just going to come back home in a few days and then now we know 74 years later that people were not going back home after a few days and so my teta was one of those people she left all her thobes behind thobes are the traditional palestinian dress that people would do tatris on and so historically that's where you see tatris is actually just on these traditional palestinian dresses um and so my grandma left all of that behind and so in my family, we don't have any thobes to pass down, unlike some, like some other people, like my co-founder, Hadil, who her grandmother has many thobes, many, many thobes from her, her like past. Um, but my family so, sadly doesn't. And that's the story for a lot of people who left very suddenly. So, Wow, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, and I want to do the mm -hmm. due diligence of unpacking it. So first off, I want to backtrack to when you said, you know, 1948, your grandmother had had left. Can you clarify for listeners who may not understand the significance of that date of 1948 and more specifically that journey? I mean, when you say right. six to eight months walking what is the impact on that in your family's legacy? Right. So, well, 1948 is the year of the Nakba, which is in Arabic. Uh, it's a word that in English means like the great catastrophe, basically. Um, and let, I just want to clarify by saying first, the Nakba did not begin in 1948. There's a lot of uh, false narratives around the fact that, you know, this quote unquote Israel started to occupy and kill Palestinians starting in 1948. That's not the truth. It started well before 1948. Um, but in 1948, there was a huge movement um, in the Israeli occupation to genocide Palestinians, specifically with my family. 
my family is from, my teta is from Gaza, but her husband, my jiddo, my grandfather is from Elid. And in Elid specifically, which was a huge bustling metropolitan city, there was a, a huge massacre. Um, and like, basically, if you want, I can give you the, you know, the exact dates and stuff around it. But um, essentially, there was a huge massacre where a majority of the population of the people that lived in Elid, this is again around like July 1948, um, were massacred. And most of the residents were forced to leave. It was a major moment of ethnic cleansing. Um, I think at that time, the population was around like 20,000 maybe. Um, but beginning in July, 1948, that population quickly decimated. And a lot of people from Elid, like I said, walked or were murdered. Um, specifically in my family, there's like stories about like, like Israeli soldiers coming and like, you know, cutting off the fingers of like my grandmother's uncles to like take their gold rings because they took everything. They wanted to take everything. Oh my God. Um, like raping women, killing women, killing children, killing babies. Like they saw, they saw so much horror during that time and they were able to escape. Thank God. Like, thankfully my grandma was able to make it out with my grandfather. But then, like you said, the impact of just, moving from place to place to place, being in hiding, being like kind of forced into exile, the obviously the mental and emotional impact of that is something that has not been super in depth studied, but I can just say from my own personal experience, like I see definitely the trauma in my grandmother, like the ways that she has so much paranoia and fear. Um, and the way that her own children have so much paranoia and fear around authority, not trusting the government, not trusting police, which none of us should trust the police or government, but they have their own specific reasons for not trusting them. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think there's so much more to say because their experience in Syria was definitely part of that, but it's definitely one of those things that I don't think we can ever really realize the magnitude of how much that impacts like a gen a whole generation of people not just my grandma and my grandfather but everyone who's part of their bloodline you know after that yeah. how do we really put a number or figure of trauma like how how traumatized yeah. are you what does that look like but tying that back scale one think, to ten yeah and a scale from one to ten how much ancestral trauma do you have <laughs> right <laughs> but touching back you know i think it's interesting that you said your grandmother once she had got to Damascus and eventually, I, you know, your family, I know, came to the States, mm -hmm. Tatris was no longer practiced. So for you, Tatris not being passed down from mother to daughter in the way it historically was because of occupation, how did you get back into Tatris? What is the significance of your own relationship that you have to Tatris? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Well, my my grandmother did teach her like her children, aka my mom and her siblings, a little bit. Um, but again, they were in a different. They were in Syria, where Tatris is not practiced. Syria has its own very rich textile history, but not related to Tatris. And you know, also imagining her kids being in a country that's not theirs. They're like first gen of Syria. They're just trying to fit in. They just, they're young. They're not, they're not super interested in those things. They've always been super proudly Palestinian, but that's something that my mom has said that she was like, 
yeah, we learned it, but like none of us really like picked it up or remembered it. Um, but I think as I became um, close to the co-founder of Designs by Nuna Hadid, who is extremely Palestinian, her family is like super, super, super Palestinian, like very proud to be Palestinian and very immersed in all of the cultural practices. She was very interested in getting back into Tatris. And I've always been very interested in textiles and clothing. And like my family has always been extremely, extremely, extremely like, I don't want to say materialistic, but shopaholic. Um, my family loves clothing. They love jewelry. They love accessories. And I always did kind of like I made earrings as a kid or learned embroidery as a kid, like things I was interested in. But um, again, connecting with Hadi and the other co-founder and seeing that she was really interested in learning about the threes kind of spurred my interest. And I was like, maybe we can go on this journey together. And so that's how we kind of both like Hadid's family had already been doing it, but that's how we both kind of got started with designs by Nuna and how I got started just learning more about the practice of Tatris. Um, we did have like random cross-stitch and like Tatris embroidered things in our home, like kind of kitschy, like God bless our home things or um, my khato Wajiha, my aunt Wajiha, who's a family friend that took care of me when my mom worked when I was younger. Um, she is Palestinian also and she had we have like little scraps from Tholbs that she gave us that I would see when I was younger but aside from that I didn't really have too much exposure so a lot a lot of it was again being lucky lucky enough to go on this journey with the co-founder Hadid to learn more and then once I started to learn I started to talk to my grandmother about it more and her excitement at me learning Tatris really pushed me to be like, no, okay, I have to like really learn about this and really go like full force on this because this is, it was something she was so, 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 so passionate about. And she feels like, again, it's something that just kind of got lost along the way with displacement and being displaced multiple times, you know, cause they were displaced from Palestine. Then they were displaced from Syria during the war. And so now she's in this place, the U S where culture is, is very different um and so I feel like her excitement made me feel like okay I have to like really commit to learning about this and doing this because it's it's bigger than just me it's like more about you know preserving my ancestral history you know I can imagine for your grandmother and for you in a way you learning Tetris was a bridge and of course you know people are responsible for healing themselves but that ancestral trauma that we carry part of you taking this journey was healing to her and to see that even with occupation, it cannot take away the proudness you have in being Palestinian and the resistance that so many Palestinians have to be to make it through. Definitely, definitely. And I think to just, um, to touch on like a couple of things, I think part of it is that, again, I'm, I'm Syrian Palestinian and because my mom and her siblings grew up in Syria and then were consequentially displaced from Syria. I think I growing up, because also growing up in the US as a first gen kid, you feel like identity is more political than it is about actually exploring who you are and being rooted in your ancestry and being rooted in cultural practices. It's more about the label you give yourself. And so for a very long time, even though I felt very like connected to being Palestinian because I I am Palestinian, I really leaned more heavily into my Syrian identity. And so I think Mm -hmm. 
for my grandmother, it's one of those full circle moments where it's like, I think she felt like, okay, my kids are Palestinian, but they grew up in Syria. Their kids are half Syrian, half Palestinian for the most part. A lot of my cousins are also half Syrian, half Palestinian, except for like a few of them. Um, And so I think for her, she felt like, okay, so like Palestine is forgotten. Like Palestine Mm. is in the past. Now, even Syria's in the past, America is the present moment. Um, And so I think for me to like really, again, pour myself into my Palestinian identity in a way that I didn't feel comfortable doing when I was younger for so many different reasons. It's really, like you said, it's been so healing for her and a full circle moment for her specifically um, to realize like, okay, this, this is not lost. Everything is not lost, you know? There's so much goodness that's coming. I'm like, where do we go from from here? (laughs) But I wanted to ask, you know, when you're talking about the Zions by Nuna really bringing it full circle, being that this project, this small business is how you're exploring this part of your identity, what has the experience been like being a small business owner who's a woman who's also... I say, quote unquote, minority, because the word minority, there's right. complexities within that. But, word, right. Yeah, but still, you know, being an Arab woman in the fashion industry isn't something that's mainstream in America. So how has that looked? How has that process, your process, been unique with Designs by Nuna? Um, that's, I think, first of all, thank you for saying that it's it's not easy, because it's definitely not. Um. I think, well, in part, the process has been like beautiful, extremely joyful. Like I connect with a lot of Arab creators and designers um, that I literally look up to that now I feel like we're all in community with each other. And that's like such an unbelievable, amazing thing. It's kind of almost like imposter syndrome where you're like, why would they want to talk to me or work with me or respond to me? Um, But then you realize, oh, we're kind of all in the same boat here we're all like you said quote unquote minorities kind of up against these huge brands whether they be fast fashion brands or designer brands or whatever and we're trying to carve out a space for ourselves in this world where we are also sustainable where we're consuming ethically where we're doing right by our ancestors and we're not just commodifying a practice so that we can like get rich off of it um but I think on the other hand it's obviously been really tough um I think specifically, especially for being in the handmade, hand embroidered business, because people simply don't want to pay the price for our labor, you know, and that's something that just with the commodification of embroidery and the embroidery becoming a machine made thing, we see a lot of people not wanting to pay for hand embroidered things or pay their value, you know, um, And I think it was one of those things that we definitely struggled with in the beginning that we were like, do we undervalue our labor until we have a stronger following? And so we could like, then we can raise our prices. Um, Or do we just set the bar high and set the bar where we think it it deserves to be and go from there? And I think we really decided on the latter because it feels like it does a disservice to not only our ancestors who built up this practice for us to get to this point where we can use it in the way that we use it, but also obviously does a disservice to just Palestine in general. And it says that like, I think when we undervalue our labor, it says that like this, this practice is kitschy. This practice is cute. You can spend $25 on it and like 
put it in your purse or whatever, but that's not the case. Like, and I think that's part of why I love doing bucket hats so much specifically, because even though we're an accessories brand, we still focus specifically right now on bucket hats. You can't really hide the embroidery, you know, with a hat. It's the, it's the thing that's going on top of whatever you're wearing on your head, no matter what. And so it's out there and it's showcased and it's displayed. Um, and I think that's part of the beautiful things like about it and about repurposing it in this more modern way. So it's been tough, like I said, but I think people, other, other makers have started to also value their embroidery, value their practices at a higher rate. And so I think if we all kind of stick together in doing that, that society will follow because people pay thousands of dollars for designer stuff. Exactly. I I was just going to say that, you know, people will go out and will pay hundreds upon hundreds, even thousands of dollars for something that has the label of Gucci or Dior or Chanel. But then when it's like, okay, especially in this culture where we talk so much, there's a shift of, oh, we need to value people who we have been historically valued and their art forms and et cetera. But then when people see the price, it gets like, uh, wait, what? Meanwhile, right. it's like $60. I know the prices range, you know, from 50 to 80, but let's just say $60 for a hat that was hand embroidered could have taken easily 12 hours to make. And if you right. divide 60 by 12, it's not minimum wage, honey. You know? Exactly. So yeah, exactly. Be, being in that, being in that nexus, I know time is coming to a close, but I did want to let you have a final thought on something you had brought up. Uh, which was about Tetris as a form of resistance. So can you Mm -hmm. briefly speak on that? Because I think that's important to incorporate as we end the show. Yeah, for sure. I love, I literally love talking about this. Um, So I'll say for context that, you know, Tetris, like I said, it's passed down from mother to daughter and it's passed down actually within each village. So each, each village has its own style and its own collective of motifs and even its own interpretation of universal motifs. And so with displacement, with occupation, many women were forced into refugee camps and they started to terres, which is the verb to, to do tetris. They started to terres together and bring all their motifs together and bring their styles together. And it was a huge, uh, unfortunate potluck of knowledge um, among these embroiderers. And so Now, as we see a lot of the people in the diaspora and even just people within Palestine who still do tatris, they use motifs and styles from everywhere because now tatris is not something that, you know, distinguishes you by village, which is one thing that it used to do. It used to help, not help, but it used to be a form of village identity, collective village identity. Now, because of this kind of share of knowledge, it's become a form of collective national identity. And we saw as like, um, you know, after 1948, especially also after 1974, the like the second Nakba, people were not allowed to wave Palestinian flags. And so you saw or wear Palestinian colors, red, white, green, or black. And so you saw women start to use tatris to embroider these national forms, like symbols of national identity, like the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is in Jerusalem. Um, Palestinian flags, the watermelon, which became a huge symbol of Palestinian resistance because it contains all the colors of the flag without being the flag. And so it became this way that people could sneakily include Palestinian-like national identity into things. Um, 
which is another super interesting thing you should definitely look into Sasha I think you'd find it interesting but um yeah so people again people started to like embroider these forms of not like symbols of national identity onto fulbs and then now even we see like it quote-unquote israeli people taking the fulb and trying to say like oh this is uh this is like part of our ancestral history this is actually an israeli thing that these is an israeli thing fulbs are an israeli thing that we've done for thousands of years and palestinians are like lying you know um, we see that, especially like, again, after 1948 and like between 1948, 1974, when people were really struggling to find work, um, people would do tatris and they would sell tholbs and they were selling tholbs to Israeli people and thinking like, okay, this is not like the worst thing I could possibly do because again, they desperately needed money, like desperately, desperately. And then they saw that Israeli people were wearing it and claiming it as their own. And so people stopped selling them to Israeli people. So um, now when you see women wearing the thulb or you see wear, women wearing tatris, you can't really divorce it from the political significance of this is like an indigenous practice that we have done for thousands of years. It proves that we have been here, or I should say hundreds of years, but it proves we've been here for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is what the Zionist agenda claims is not true, that Palestinians were never here um, and that it was like a, an open land where nobody lived. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that was just a really long kind of complicated way of saying like, there's so many different reasons why it's part of resistance. But now whenever you see a woman wearing a thulb, it's about the pride of being Palestinian, the pride of coming from her village, which may not exist anymore. And just the pride of, of resisting like the colonial agenda through every single facet of their life, including fashion, you know? It really, again, comes full circle to it's undeniable the impact that occupation has had. And yet time and time again, Palestinians refuse to not be seen, their stories not to be heard. And now is the time really through fashion that that can be amplified throughout the diaspora, including in the U.S. And on that note, for the folks who want to know more about Tatris, I know I follow you on Instagram, which it's not only about designs by Nuna, but also this rich history. Where can they either purchase a bucket hat, follow and show support? Yeah, so um, thank you so much for plugging us, by the way. We appreciate it literally so much. And if people are interested in supporting, they can go directly to our Instagram, which is designs, like the word designs by, like B-Y, and Nuna, Nuna spelled N-O-O-N-A. Um, and if you go to that Instagram page, you'll find our Etsy, which is also etsy.com slash designs by Nuna. Again, Nuna spelled N-O-O-N-A. That's basically it. And we post a lot of like historical stuff because I'm really interested in history and archival and stuff like that so we post a lot of that info there and we follow a lot of great people that you can also just find through our page so thank you so much for that final word uh, the show would not be complete without giving a special thanks to Hadid Michal and Zainab Tawil again to whom this series wouldn't be possible without their input, ideas, feedback, and support were paramount in putting together a series on Palestine anchored in truth and storytelling. They are two of the proudest Palestinians I know, and I pray live to see the day their motherland, Palestine, is free. 
And thank you to our listeners for your participation. We want to encourage listeners to continue this discussion through our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast has been brought to you by Pointcast News and Elag Productions, a studio for podcasters, musicians, and anyone who has something to say. To listen to any of our podcasts, visit our website at pointcast.news or visit us at Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to like and follow us on our social media pages at Facebook and Instagram. Join us next time. Until then, be blessed and take care.